0: Our text this morning is found in the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, a very simple verse that talks about the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. When we think of Christmas, many times, if not most of the time, we don't think clearly of Advent. We talked last Sunday when lighting the first candle, Advent is a word that Cares with the meaning of coming. And Advent is the coming of Christ. And we talk about that, and we'll we'll get all upset, you know, if if uh if Disney has a billboard that says, come to Mickey's Merry Party and leave out the word Christmas. Uh we get upset if people don't say Merry Christmas, but say happy holidays because of that taking out, we perceive, something from the, the meaning of the time, the meaning of the season. But quite honestly, if we're serious and if we're honest with one another, when we think about Christmas, Advent is not the priority thing that we think about, especially if we're younger. Typically, if we think about Christmas, the very first thought that comes to our mind is, I'm going to get something really nice. I'm going to get gifts. Mom and dad are going to give me gifts. Grandmom and granddad are going to give me gifts. Aunts and uncles and friends and everybody's going to give me stuff, and man, Christmas is great because I get a lot of neat stuff. Maybe it's not just kids that think that way. Maybe even as adults, we think, man, if it, it, it's Christmas time. I've been wanting this new dress or this new shirt or, or something, and, and I'm just sure that, that my family is going to give that to me, and we get all excited about that stuff that surely we're going to get during the Christmas season, I typically, during different seasons of the year, will draw out from my heroes of the faith, those who are long dead and gone, and will read from them. This past week, I happened to do that with Charles Spurgeon, uh, whom I love. Spurgeon preached this particular sermon called The Incarnation and Birth of Christ, I just stole his title. The sermon's not his, but I stole his title in the, in the order of worship. He used the same text, but, but his view of Christmas was just a little bit different from ours in mid-1800s in England. He said, this is the season of the year when whether we wish it or not, talking about believers or unbelievers, whether we wish it or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. I hold it to be one of the greatest absurdities under heaven to think that there's any religion in keeping Christmas Day. There are absolutely no probabilities whatever that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born on that day, December 25th, and that observance of it is purely a popish origin. Doubtless, those who are of that faith have the right to hallow it, but I do not see how consistent Protestants can count it in the least as a sacred day. However, I wish that there were ten or a dozen Christmas days in the year, for there is work enough in the world, and little more than rest would not hurt laboring people. Christmas Day is really a boon to us, particularly as it enables us to assemble around the family hearth and meet our friends once more. Still, altogether, we do not fall exactly in track with other people. I see no harm in keeping Christmas in thinking of the incarnation and the birth of our Lord Jesus. But we do not wish to be classed with those who would just do away with it entirely. The old Puritans made parade of work on Christmas Day just to show that they protested against the observance of it. But we believe they entered that protest so completely that we are unwilling as their descendants to take the good accidental, uh, accidentally conferred by that day and leave its superstitions to the superstitious. Now what he was saying was, is that there's no way that Christ was born on December 25th. And we make much of that day, and we do it with so many trappings and so many things around it that have absolutely nothing to do with the incarnation that sometimes we fall guilty of making it more of a secular observance than it is a spiritual observance. And we ought to be spiritually observing the incarnation of Christ every single week and every single month and every single day in which we live. That the incarnation of Christ is something that is to be greatly rejoiced in. The incarnation, the coming of God in flesh to live among us is something that we should revel in and declare and proclaim not just for one month, they're not just for one day at the end of the year, but literally that it ought to be a part of our lives every single day that we live. It ought to be something that we think about when we rise up and when we lie down. The coming of Christ into the world for the believer is not just a time to get gifts and stuff from those around us, but the incarnation of Christ is a time to rejoice in that we have been given a gift, indeed the gift, the most valuable gift, the most glorious gift that could ever be imagined for any time, and it certainly supersedes and is so much greater than any of the trinkets or any of the the baubles that we might get during this particular time. Now, so much for my cosmic killjoy attitude this morning. It's not that there's anything wrong with celebrating. As long as the celebrating is done with the right focus, with the right intent, and with pure heart. The prophet Micah said in chapter 5, verse 2 of his prophecy, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, indeed from the days of eternity. When the prophet Micah spoke hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, and he pinpointed the exact place where Christ would be born. He would be born in that tiny village that had no real significance other than David had been born there. So it had a bit of notoriety. It had a bit of, 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 of famousness because David had been born in that city. But really, that was about it. David had come out of the city, had gone to Jerusalem, had become the king, And so it was the place where David was born. But because this one that was Messiah was to be a a descendant of David, a descendant of the king. In fact, a lot of David's Psalms, when he talks about, and people read them and think he's talking about himself. He's really talking about the one in his line that is yet to come, the one who is really the king. He was a temporal king. He was an earthly king. But there is one coming in my line, in my family, who will sit on my throne. That is an eternal king and will reign forever on that throne. When when David thought about that, when Micah thought about that, they're thinking about something far greater than just one who would sit on a temporal earthly throne and rule for a period of time. Micah and David were all thinking about this one who would come from the house of David, who would be born king of the Jews and king of all creation why he came. Micah said very clearly, he said, there is one who is coming out of you, one who will come forth for me to be the ruler of Israel, from you to go forth for me to be the king, the ruler, the Messiah of Israel. And his goings are not just at that moment. They're not just at the time that that manger was occupied by a baby, but but his coins, his comings, his, his existence is from long ago. Indeed, they are from eternity in the days of all eternity. The picture that is given so clearly and the truth that is proclaimed so clearly is that while the birth was a necessary happening, the birth and the coming of the Messiah through the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem was an important point in history and an important event in history. It was not the beginning. It was merely the, the coming of the one who has his beginning long ago. That's why I love to read John's account so often during the Christmas season, during the Advent season. Because John doesn't start in the manger. John doesn't start talking about the baby and and all of the, the, the shepherds and the angels and the light and everything around him. Although that is important in the historical narrative, John starts in the cosmic reality of eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. He was there in the beginning at creation. He pre-existed the creation because He's the second person of the Godhead. He has always existed for all of eternity. Now, Now, I realize that sounds like a lot of theological theory to many people. A lot of people say, What is the practical reality of that? I mean, you know, okay, we, we say that he existed pre incarnate before his coming as a baby, before his birth. He existed for eternity past, but, but what is that practically important for you and me living in 2014, 21st century, 2,000 years after the fact of his birth and, and forever after his pre existence in eternity past? What is the practical reality of that? The practical reality is that he came with a mission. He came to be the ruler of God. He came to establish a kingdom over Israel who rejected him and carried the message then beyond Israel to the Gentiles, which stretches to you and me. And he came with a purpose and a message that is the eternal message of salvation in Christ for all who believe. That's why he came. We live in a day that wants to say, "Oh, the story of Jesus is a beautiful little story. It's kind of a, it's kind of a nice story. It's very pleasant. It's it's a little tragic. There's a little sadness, a little tragedy, a little love story, a little bit of a little bit everything that we like in our in our drama in our world today." But the birth of Christ is an announcement. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. That salvation has come for all who believe. That salvation has come in this one Jesus Christ, sent by the Father, conceived through the Holy Spirit, and now alive and living in the world in order to become that sacrifice that will bring about forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. That little baby was born in that manger for one specific purpose, and that is so that you and I might be reconciled with the living God who are living in broken relationship with Him because of the fall. I taught our ninth and 10th graders this morning, and I I asked them, or I, I told them I thought I would ask them, but I then didn't ask them, I just told them. But, uh, you know, it, it, when you're looking for a church, you ought to look for it. We're talking about the doctrine of the church and the, their Sunday school class for this month. And I, I told them, I said, when you're looking for a church, one of the things you ought to look for is a church that 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 cherishes and proclaims the gospel. And I said, I I, I want to ask you each one just to go around one by one and tell me what is the gospel. Now I know that our young people have pretty good training in that, so I'm sure they could have answered me, but I didn't want to run the risk of embarrassing somebody, so I just told them. I said, but you know, the the gospel is more than just Christ's coming, although it is that is involved in it. The gospel stretches back to the fall of man. God created us and God created a perfect world and, and God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and they chose to sin and when they f- chose to sin and fell their sin was inherited by each one of us and we lived in a broken relationship with God but God didn't just leave it there even as the video talked about God loved his world God loved his people and, and God sent his son through that baby into the world to live and to die in our place that that He might go to the grave, be raised again on the third day in victory over death, and and might uh, uh, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and there might declare and send His Spirit in order to call His people to Himself in repentance and salvation. I mean, there's a glorious story that stretches literally from eternity past to eternity future, and that's the gospel message. And this manger... Bethlehem is kind of right at the center, but why did he come? The scripture tells us many different things about why he came, and I could probably spend the rest of this day and into tomorrow recounting the reasons he came, but, but I think there are five or six that are really significant that we need to recognize as we think about Bethlehem, that tiny city, that that city that literally means house of bread. I think that's significant, that not only is it the house of David and the city of David, but it means the house of bread and the living bread of life that comes into the world. When Jesus said, if you're hungry, eat of me the eternal living bread and, and I will give you life, that the bread of life was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Augustine said something about that that I'll quote at the end of this sermon, so wait on that. But why did he come? I well, think There are five or six specific reasons. One, he came to redeem his people. In, Luke's, excuse me, in Mark's gospel, it's stated this way, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Mark 10, 45. He came to give Himself as a ransom, to to be a redemption for His people, to to buy His people, to redeem His people for Himself and for the glory of God. And, and, And this little baby lying in the manger didn't come just so we can have sweet little Christmas stories and sweet little Christmas carols sung about Him. He came to be a Redeemer. He came for you and me who were lost and who were separated from the one who had created us and the one who rightfully owned us, but had chosen to follow our own way and go our own way. He came to be a ransom for many, to redeem. Secondly, he came according to Luke's gospel in Luke 5 to call sinners to repentance. In Luke 5, 31 and 32, it says, Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, to those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Again, with our youth this morning, I talked about the whole concept of, of what it means to be a Christian. And, and and part of what it means to be a Christian is, is to be regenerated, to be made new, to have new birth, that, that John talked about, Jesus talked about in John chapter three to Nicodemus but it also carries the idea of conversion that is changing and being changed to a different direction. And and the whole essence of that is faith and repentance. We we talk a lot about faith. We really do. We'll talk about, you need to have faith in Christ, and you do. You need to trust in Jesus, and, and you do. But we hear very little talk about repentance. And some say, oh, no, we don't talk about repentance because repentance is a work. And, and, and if we repent and, and, and do that, then we're, we're giving it a work to try to earn our salvation. That's about as unbiblical as anything ever could be. Jesus said, I came to call those who are sinners to repentance. Now, faith and repentance are so t- tightly inter- interwoven that they're like the same uh, two sides of the same coin, if you will. You don't get one without the other. You, you don't have faith without repentance. You don't have repentance without faith because what are you, what are you repenting of? You don't have faith in Christ. What are you repenting to? You know, you're repenting of sin and, and believing in Christ. And, and Jesus said, I came to call this world and those who are sinners to repentance. Now, I realize there are a lot of people in our world today who say, oh, well, good. He, wouldn't, he, he didn't come to call me. I'm all right. I'm righteous. Uh, newsflash here. When he said, I came to call sinners to repentance, he's saying, I came to call every single human being on the face of the earth because that's where we all are and that's who we all are. He came to call us to repentance. So he came to be a a redeemer. He came to call sinners to repentance of their sin and faith in himself. Thirdly, he came to give sight to the spiritually blind. The spiritually and the morally blind. You know, all those miracles we looked at in John's gospel, uh, my favorite, I think, of all of them is when he gave sight to the blind. Because in one sense, in that one little miracle, that one little sign, which is the sign of the Messiah, that he would come and give sight to the blind, but in that sign, in that miracle, you see the glory of what it means to be bought with a price, to be called to repentance, and to be in Christ. Spiritual blindness, moral blindness is removed. In John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came came into this world that those who do not see may see. And in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me might not remain in darkness. There is a clarity to the gospel message that we must think about and that we must proclaim during this Advent season, a clarity to to blindness, spiritual blindness. That's why you'll hear me pray often from this pulpit in in a closing prayer, whatever, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will open the eyes of men and women here to see their need for a Savior and open their hearts, O Lord, as you did Lydia's, to believe that Christ is, is the Savior, the only Savior, the only Redeemer, the only one who calls us to true repentance from our sin and faith in Himself, the living God living among us. He came to redeem. He came to call. He came to give sight to those who are blind. And every person outside of Christ is blind, folks. They may have 20-20 vision physically. They may have a real understanding of of all sorts of subject matter. But unless they're in Christ, they're morally and they're spiritually blind, according to Jesus. Fourthly, He came to save us from condemnation. He called to bring judgment and to open our eyes in order to save us from divine condemnation and divine wrath. In John three seventeen and 18, Jesus said, For God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. There is a reprieve. There is a a snatching, if you will, from the condemnation of God in the work of Christ to those who believe. I know. We... Again, we live in a day, even within many churches, where divine condemnation is kind of a horrible thought. They, they think, "Oh man, do't want to think about God condemning anybody? I mean, God, don't we have a God who's just a God of love and peace? and you, know, He just, he just goes along with whatever. He just goes along to get along, doesn't He? Is't that the way God is? No. Scripture makes it very clear that God is a God who will ultimately condemn the lost. To their just rewards what they wanted out of the presence of his grace out of the presence of his light out of the presence of his joy out of the patient presence of his love and peace but jesus came to save men and women from that and when he hung on that cross we well, don't see it in the manger That's just the beginning of the story. But when he hung on that cross and he cried out with those words, it is finished, and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not the pain of the nails or the pain of the spear or the pain of suffocation on that cross. That was his agony. It was the pain of taking upon himself the condemnation and the wrath for the sin that you and I committed. Now think about that. That's what Advent's all about. The beginning of the story, the beginning of the truth, the beginning of the reality that He has come to do His work. I know, I know, I can hear you thinking, but that's not a real popular. It's not a real popular point in the day in which we live. It doesn't sound very tolerant. It doesn't sound very inclusive of everybody. It sounds rather exclusive. I didn't say it. But he did. So he came to be a ransom, he came to redeem, he came to call sinners to repentance, he came to give sight, he came to save from that condemnation and wrath of God, and, and finally, he, he came to give us eternal life. He came to give us eternal life. John three sixteen. does anybody know that verse? Yeah. At least our kids, I'm sure, could quote it, and probably most of our adults could. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, born in a manger, but didn't stay in a manger. See, that's where American Christmas wants to keep Him, is in the manger, he didn't stay there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said, all that come to me, I will not cast out. If you come to me, I will receive you as my own. He came to give eternal life. Christmas means that God sent his son so that we could believe and have life. Simply. Pure and simple. God sent his son in that manger in Bethlehem, tiny as it was, as the bread of life. In the house of bread. There is an alternate meaning to Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon in his his sermon brought out the, the contrast there. He said, Bethlehem can also mean house of war as well as house of bread. And, and he said, you know, it really is going to be one or the other for every person on the face of the earth. It's going to either be, Bethlehem is either going to be the house of bread for those who believe, who come to faith in Christ, who put their trust in him, and are born again, regenerated, redeemed, or whatever word you want to use, brought to faith in Christ, it'll be a house of bread. A bread that will, will nourish you forever. The bread of life, Jesus himself. Or it will be a house of war. To all those who do not believe will be at war with Almighty God for all of eternity. Augustine summed it up this way. Or Augustine, if you're from the South. But Augustine summed it up this way. In one of his sermons. He said, in sum, in summation, man's maker was made man." that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. So that we could live. So that we could live. So what does Advent mean? What does Christmas mean? Santa Claus and reindeer and snowmen and greenery and trees and candles. Only if they point the incarnation to the birth of the one who literally was born to die we are born and we will die he was born with the expressed purpose of dying that he might give life to you and me this advent season this christmas season nothing else comes out of it may it be a time where you focus on the one who's the bread of life the one who is the redeemer you see that's the that's the practicality of this manger that's the practicality of the birth of christ That's the practical application for you and me today. That He came in that manger to go to that cross that you and I might live for all eternity. In His presence, with His glory, fully united. one who is our Lord when Paul said in Romans chapter 10 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved he didn't say if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was born in a manger although he was The emphasis of the early church and the emphasis of Scripture is the death, burial, and resurrection. It's what the baby came in the world to do. And we must always, we must always see the cross behind the cradle. Let's pray together. There are many of you here this morning that I don't know. And I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ. And I would just say that in this Advent season, I call you to Christ. I invite you to Christ. Not to a church or a denomination or a preacher. But to the one who was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. That we might live. some of you that I know I would ask you to examine yourselves and ask that question am I truly in Christ in union with him in relationship with him or is he just a religious figure that I kind of like is it just a nice story about a manger that sounds good I pray this morning that the one who came to open spiritually blind eyes would open eyes in this place to see the Savior and to believe in Him. Father, we are grateful this morning for your purpose and plan and salvation and we are grateful this morning, Lord, that we can sing and say with all the redeemed of the earth, all I have is Christ. All the trappings, all the materialism, all that we see around us, promoting the season. It's pretty. It's tempting. But in reality, all I have is Christ. Father, make that the truth of every person in this room today, I pray. In Jesus' name.